your sensei. Turn, kneel. Johnny, you're green, Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. No sensei. No mercy. Good to see everybody here today, and I'm excited. We're starting a new series today uh, called Fight for Your Life. Fight for Your Life. My name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. If somebody's new, this is your first time today, we want to say welcome, and uh, hopefully that the time you spend with us will be an encouragement to you. If you didn't stop by the VIP table on the way in, like Jason said, please stop by there on the way out, drop off your completed connection card, and there's a gift for you. Just want to say thank you for spending time with us today. Now, today is going to be kind of an introduction into this series uh, for this topic of discussion that we're going to kind of unpack for the next several weeks. And like I said last week, uh, we're going to take a break for Easter. We're going to do like a little mini-series in between because this subject is probably going to take us uh, several weeks to unpack and get through. But after the mini-series in Easter, we'll jump back in where we left off. And uh, so I'm excited about this. Uh, but the reason why we started last month talking about hope was to set up this series. This series, because it's important to know that not only do we have hope, but where our hope comes from. It comes from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And hope is the mechanism that God uses to increase our faith and to empower us in this fight for our lives. And we are going to have to cling to that hope as we engage in this fight. Now, I was trying to think of a, the perfect fight illustration, and I was thinking of movies and things. That's why we had the, the original Karate Kid soundtrack going on in the, in the setup, because that movie's iconic and amazing. If you've never seen it, shame on you. You should go see it right now. Uh, best movie ever. Kind of sets up the whole struggle between good and evil. It's a great film. But I was thinking about my own life, and I was like, man, I don't, I don't have many personal examples to give because I didn't really get into a fight my entire life. You know, I, I never really knew what, I mean, my brother and I, we wrestled, I guess you can call that fight, fighting, but I was never in really one of those bloody nose, knockout, knock drag out, you know, slug fist fights that, uh, that many of you probably have in your, your history. So I'm like, what could I pull from? And so I started praying, God, give me an illustration. And then he brought to mind what I like to call the bathroom incident. When I was in the third grade, yes, the third grade, uh, some friends or like these new neighbors moved in next door and uh, a 
kid my age named Chad was there, and he had an older brother named Steve. My brother hung out with his brother because my brother was older than me, and they hung out together, so Chad and I hung out, and um, after a while, we kind of stopped hanging out, stopped getting along, and uh, I didn't, didn't understand why that was, but every day in class, we would have our bathroom break, and when we'd go to the bathroom, uh, after everyone got done doing their business, he would always walk by me and say, hey, Henry, and he would poke me really hard in the chest. And it, I can't say that word, but it made me mad. You know which word I'm talking about. It made me mad. I was upset, and I didn't know why he was doing this. And it was every day, like clockwork. We'd go to the bathroom break. He'd come by, and he'd poke me in the chest and say, hey, Henry, just kind of, you know, trying to uh, punk me out or something. I'm not sure. And so I got really discouraged by this because, you know, I was a pretty nice kid, I thought, and got along with most everybody. So I went home, and I told my dad what was going on. Now, in my family, we had a rule. The rule was, if you get in trouble at school, you're in trouble at home. So I tried to be a really good kid. I wasn't trying to be rebellious at school, did my work, you know, was good to the teachers. And so when I was telling my dad this story, I said, what am I supposed to do about this? He said, well, the next time he does it, sock him in the face. And I thought, huh. You know, I, I didn't want to get into scuffles like that at school because I knew if I got in trouble at school, I'd get in trouble at home. But here my dad says, you have a free pass. Punch that dude. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I psyched myself up. I kind of planned the whole thing in my mind. I was like, you know, I'm going to set myself up for the perfect angle, and this guy's going to get it. And so, uh, lo and behold, the next day at school, we have our bathroom break. We're all doing our business. He comes by just like, you know, normal. He pokes me in the chest. I turn around, and I clocked him, spun him around. And I said, don't touch me ever again, and I walked right on out. And I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was like, hex, yeah. I showed that bully what's up. You know, it's just like feeling good about myself. And, you know, of course, in every class, you have the tattletale. So some little punk kid told on us. And we both got in-school suspension for the rest of the day. And I'm sitting there in the principal's office. I'm like, I am not worried about a thing. I got permission to be in trouble today. I am good to go. You know, he's not going to mess with me again. And when I get home, my parents are going to say anything about it because I got permission. So, you know, the rest of the day went by. It seemed like an eternity. We got on the bus, and we went home. And as I got off the bus, it stopped right in front of our houses. I started walking towards my house, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw him kind of hanging out in the background. And he let the bus drive by, and when the bus was gone, he said, hey, Joey. And I turned around. I'm like, what? He's like, you think you can hit me and get away with it? He bum-rushed me, tackled me to the ground, put me in a headlock, and started cutting off all of my air supply. And I couldn't move. That was a bad day. That day, I learned a major lesson about fighting, and that is fighting has consequences. I especially learned something about retaliation, that the first battle, the first skirmish, isn't always the end of the battle, that there's oftentimes retaliation. And I also learned something about being unprepared. You see, I was overconfident, and I combined that with the fact that I did not know my enemy. I did not know he had been taking martial arts. I also did not know that he was pretty athletic and had been in football and other aggressive sports. I didn't realize how big this kid was, how heavy he was, how strong he was. So I was a little outmatched. You see, the tide in any battle can turn at any moment, especially if we are caught unprepared. 
And I didn't know much about him other than just from what we've been hanging out. And this relates to us today because in my experience, the church has not only become overconfident, but in doing so has made itself unprepared. I believe that people within the church, not just this church, but the church corporately in general, have forgotten that we are in a fight all together. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, this is our theme verse, the verse you saw scrolling on the screen. Paul to the church of Ephesus declares this. He says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Notice Paul writing this letter to a church. This is post-resurrection. He is not saying we fought this war before we were saved. Nor Jesus fought this before he died, and now after the resurrection, it's all good. No, this letter is to a post-resurrection church, to Christians. And he's telling us we presently fight or struggle or wrestle against evil spirits. This war is happening even right now in this very room. Sit in that for a second. Sit in that. This war is taking place right now. And the church, out of fear, I believe, has been so dismissive of spiritual warfare that we've stopped believing it exists altogether. And maybe not in doctrinal belief, because you can't get past reading scriptures like this in the Bible. So we could say with our minds, yes, we know the Bible teaches about spiritual warfare and the battle between good and evil. That's not how we're denying this belief. We deny it in practice, in the way we live our lives. In so doing, we've granted Satan and his demonic army permission to work among us unchallenged. And we need to wake up to this war today. We need to wake up because this is the reason, the very reason, we struggle to live a holy life. This is why we struggle to live that abundant life Jesus came to provide us. It's due to this war that we're fighting. And the enemy wants us to be dismissive. He wants us to act like it's no big deal. He wants us to overlook it or be willingly ignorant so he can cinch his hands around our throats and slowly strangle the life out of us. We can see this war perfectly at work in our main text today. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. The verses will also be on the screen. But we're going to read a very familiar story. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And we're going to see how just the Scripture unpacks, even from the beginning of time, this war is at play in our lives. Now, in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the Word says this. It said, Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I've produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Verse 6 says, Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. 
but you must subdue it and be its master. Father in heaven, we've declared your word today, and I pray as we unpack this subject, we peel the curtain back to reveal light on this war. Father, I pray against the enemy, his servants' works and effects right now. I plead the blood of Christ in this place that you would silence his voice. God, that our attention would be in tune to you. The only voice we hear is of the Holy Spirit. God, that Jesus' name would be glorified. God, and that you would reign in this place today. Speak to our hearts. Give us open ears, open minds, and a ready heart. Now, in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So Cain and Abel, brothers, they both present sacrifices to God. God accepts Abel's sacrifice because it was his best. It was his first, his best, the greatest he could offer, which demonstrated that Abel had a love or a heart for God. He had a relationship with God. He had a burning desire to honor God with all that he had. So God honored his gift. But Cain, his gift was rejected because he did not give his first and his best. He gave his leftovers. Another translation of the Bible says he gave over the process of time when he thought he could scrape up enough to provide a sacrifice or an offering when he, you know, realized that, you know, he had a little bit left over that he could do away with. You know, that's what he scraped together. He gave God the leftovers, and so God did not accept his gift. It showed that Cain had a religion. He went through the process of religion, but he had no real relationship with God. He had no love for the Lord. And Cain was upset at Abel out of jealousy, and God knew this. God could see what was going on in his heart. So God comes to Cain in verse 7 of chapter 4. God speaks to Cain and he says this. He says, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Somebody in this place today say, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door. And we know the word sin commonly refers to the offenses that we commit against God. These are the crimes that we're responsible for against God, either against things that we do against him or against someone else. But if you, we look at another passage of Scripture, we'll begin to unpack to see this word could actually refer to uh, maybe a few other things or something else. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 I like how the translators of the King James Version translated this verse. So we're going to read it in the King James Version. Romans 5.12, this is Paul the Apostle to the church of Rome. He says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Again, we understand, and it's commonly taught, that when Adam made the first transgression against God, when he and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when they rebelled, they sinned, they did things their own way, a curse was unleashed into the world. God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, the day you eat of it, you are surely to die. Something is going to be brought into this world that you've not experienced yet, and it's not going to be good. And that curse brought into the world was like a cancer, and it spread to everyone and everything because of Adam. Even creation, Paul tells us in Romans, groans for the day Jesus is going to come back and redeem everything to make all things new because no one and nothing is exempt from the curse of sin and death. Matter of fact, sin 
takes effect at the moment that we are born, the moment life is produced. We have received this sinful nature from Adam. This curse has affected all of us. In Psalm 51, verse 5, the psalmist writes this. He says, I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. The moment I was conceived, I was born into sin. This is what we inherited from Adam when sin was brought into the world. So from birth, we understand biblically the sin is at work within our bodies and within our, our hearts or our spirits or souls, even at the moment of conception. The spark of life quickly fades when the curse of death comes to life in a person, which creates a whole host of issues in our world that we see every day because of this fallen nature. It's at work before we even take our first breath. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? When Adam first rebelled against God, being the first man, through him now has been passed this sinful nature into everyone thereafter. We have inherited a sinful nature, a wicked nature from our parents. It's unavoidable. It's inescapable, which is why we needed a Savior to save us from ourselves. So when we refer to sin and we see the Bible referring to sin, we're not just talking about the offenses that are committed against God and against one another. We're also talking about the very nature of our fallen hearts because our hearts are sinfully wicked, which is why we need a Savior. But here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it's interesting that as Paul is revealing how sin is passed down through Adam, he uses two different words in the original Greek language for sin. If we read it again and look at it, using those original words, in uh, verse 12, he says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin, it's the Greek word, hamartia. He said, hamartia entered into the world, and death by hamartia. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And that's the word, hamatana. Two different words, but yet they are translated in the exact same way. It means to miss the mark, to err, to be mistaken, to miss or wander from the path of righteousness and honor, to do wrong or to wander from the law of God and violate God's law, in essence, to sin. But if we look at what Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, because of Adam, something called sin entered into the world, and because it entered into the world, there was death, death because of sin, and death passed upon all men. This thing called sin that Paul is referring to, came into the world and brought with it this curse of death, using it as a weapon against everyone and everything. And so the question I have to ask is we're wrestling with, with what is this sin? Does the scripture speak of something else other than our offenses or our fallen nature that wields death like a weapon? And I believe it does. I believe it does. The third part of sin I believe the Bible refers to is just like our main text in Genesis chapter 4 where God is speaking about sin wanting to control you. It waits crouching at the door. It is the force that exploits that fallen nature that's at work within us. God refers to sin and he personifies it in Genesis chapter 4. You see, Cain, he had already been cursed with that fallen nature. He was born of Adam. He had already been cursed. Sin was already at work within him. He was under that curse of sin and death. And we know of the fact that he had jealousy and resentment in his heart that he was already committing offenses against God. So God wasn't referring to his fallen nature or offenses in this moment. He was speaking of something else. 
And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, I think kind of peels back what that something else is. In verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says this, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. The son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of, what's that word? Death. He broke the power of the devil who had the power of death. Here the writer of Hebrews indicates that Satan's power is the power of death. So could it be that Paul, by using two separate words for sin in Romans 5, 12, is not only revealing a fallen nature passed down to every person because of Adam's first sin, but by using these two different words, he's revealing that the sin also refers to a specific person, namely the devil, who was given authority and power in this world he did not previously have because all authority was given to mankind as we were made in the image of God. Now that Adam sinned, he had authority that did not belong to him. And Satan used this newfound authority not to bring the world to life, which was what Adam was charged by God to do. No, now he was bringing death into the world, spreading death to everyone and everything. But again, as we look at these scriptures, it's hard to know for sure that God is referring to Satan in Genesis chapter 4. So let's look at one other passage of scripture, John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus is confronting some religious leaders, and he's rebuking them for, for their, their misunderstanding of the word of God. In John 8, 44, here's what Jesus says. He says, For you are the children of your father, the devil. You love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Somebody say, the devil is a liar. He's a liar. And we know that he lied. The serpent comes to Eve in the cool of the day and makes her view the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He tempts her by telling her not to trust the word of God, not to believe God's word is true, but to think of her own desires, to think what could benefit her. He twists and he lies and he manipulates so that her and her husband with her would sin. And we know that story. It's taught. It's preached. But where is the murder in that story? Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning, talking about this first family. He was a murderer, but we know there's no murder in the story of Adam and Eve. Where is the murder? Well, let's look at the story of Cain and Abel. After Cain had been rejected, he was feeling sorry for himself. He was resentful towards his brother. God warned him. Sin was crouching at the door. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, the word of the Lord records this. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. While they were in the fields, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. We see murder in the story of Cain. And not only do we see murder in the story of Cain and Abel, Jesus had two specific uh, accusations against Satan in John 8, 44. We also see in the next verse, in verse 9 of Genesis chapter 4, it says, afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? Cain responded, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? All through Scripture, God asks people rhetorical questions. And it's not because God is ignorant of the answers. God asks people questions because he wants our hearts to become repentant. He wants us to become in line with the truth, to get the, aha, okay, God, now I understand what you're saying. But Cain 
was under the control of sin. And he does not repent. He does not come in line with the truth. His statement, I don't know, was a bold-faced lie because Cain knew exactly where Abel was. He was lying dead in a field at his own hand. In John 8, 44, Jesus accuses Satan of murder and lying in that order. In Genesis 4, 8, 9, we see Cain commit murder and lies in the very same order. So the assumption that sin that is crouching at the door is actually referring to Satan is consistent with Christ's description of Satan's rap sheet, his crimes that took place in the beginning of creation in John 8. And in Paul, his revelation of sin in Romans 5.12 is also consistent with the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, sin wielded the power of death, according to Paul, and Satan wields the power of death in Hebrews chapter 2. It's my belief that Satan is the something else that God was speaking of in Genesis 4. Satan is sin incarnate. He was crouching at the door of Cain's heart. I believe God knew and was telling Cain, Satan is itching to get a hold of you. And when he was given the opportunity, Satan entered into Cain and used him to commit egregious crime against God. He committed the very first premeditated murder in all of recorded history. And this stands as a warning for all of us that sin is crouching at the door of our hearts, waiting for an opportunity to gain control over us because just like Cain, he has a plan for our lives. Jesus said the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. He has a plan of destruction laid out for each and every one of us. In 1 John 3, 8, John, speaking to the church, he says this. He says, when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the who? To the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Because of the curse that's been passed down to all of us, all of mankind through Adam's rebellion, we have been left to fight a never-ending war against our sinful flesh and the powers of darkness in this life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that's his express goal for all of humanity, including you and me. This is Satan's will for us. He has many lies, many schemes, many plans at work in the world as a means to get a hold of your life, just as he did Cain. And just like Cain, Satan wants to get you to destroy. He wants you to commit crimes against God, to be the destroyer to harm others, to bring about the effects of sin and death into the world. And by you becoming the destroyer, getting you to destroy, you in turn will be destroyed. And this is our reality, a very real problem. This is the struggle that we have because of every second of every day, Satan is waiting to get his hands around our throats. But look what God tells Cain in regards to sin in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 says something very specific. He says, you must subdue it and be its master. You see, we are in the fight for our lives, but there is hope. Because you can overcome Satan. In Christ, you've been given authority over the devil and his schemes. You've been given authority over the armies of darkness. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38 It says this, he says, And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the who? The devil. For God was with him. 
This was Jesus' ministry while he was here on the earth. And just before he left, just before he ascended into heaven and sent his disciples out to begin the church age, to revolutionize the world through the preaching of the gospel, he gave some specific indicators about how they could tell who was among true believers and true followers of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 16, verse 17, this is the word of Christ himself. He said, these miracles or miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. What's that say? They will cast out what? Demons in my name. They'll speak with other tongues. They will cast out demons. They will exercise authority over the forces of darkness. Jesus was revealing to the church that we were to continue and that we would continue the work that he began while he was here. That we were to advance the kingdom of God by taking back the stolen ground from the kingdom of Satan. But my question is to you today, is when was the last time you cast out a demon? When was the last time you went toe-to-toe with Satan? Maybe never? Is it because the spirits don't exist anymore? Or maybe just somehow they don't work in America anymore that we're somehow exempt? I mean, I think we could look around in our culture and just turn on the news and see that's not true. If you are a child of God, Jesus said these signs will accompany those who believe. This has some very strong implications to our faith journey, to our relationship with God, to our connection with the Holy Spirit. He says, those who follow me, who believe, will exhibit these things. So my question is, is then why haven't we gone toe-to-toe with Satan? Why haven't we cast out demons? Why haven't we delivered all who are oppressed by the enemy? Maybe it's because we don't even know how to recognize who they are, where they are, or their work in our lives. I would say for most of us, the answer is no. We don't even see them. Because the modern church has become content and comfortable with getting our feel-good message on Sunday and then going home to ignore the war on Monday. The problem is, just like God's word to Cain, is that if you are not proactive against the enemy, if you're not putting effort into subduing him, God warned Cain that he would rule over us. Sin is crouching at the door. You must be its master or subdue it, or he will rule over over you, and if we would look at the brokenness in our lives and in the lives of people we know, Christian, not Christian, the like, I think we could agree that that's what's been happening. For many of us, he rules. We don't even know it. This is the ever-present fight in the life of the believer in Christ, a fight we have to be constantly on the offensive. No prevent defense, only offense. The war we wage is a constant struggle against our sinful nature and against the work of God. Our sinful nature is the seed of Satan, and our new nature, which is the seed of the Holy Spirit, are constantly in a tug-of-war battle within us. Galatians 5, 17, Paul says to the church, Galatia, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is the opposite of what the Spirit wants, and the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you are not free to carry out your good intentions. 
There is a constant struggle within us over who is going to be in charge of our lives, the Holy Spirit who leads us to life and freedom or the enemy who leads us to darkness and destruction. Cain never let go of his jealousy. He got resentful, which created a root of bitterness that was left to fester and grow within his life. And that sinful attitude is what opened the door to his heart, allowing Satan to move in and take over on the driver's seat. Genesis 4, verse 8, says, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And that's when he killed him. This was premeditated murder. My question is, is what gave Cain that idea? Murder had never happened before. What gave Cain that idea? The answer is sin did. Satan did when he entered Cain. Satan whispered into his mind through the vehicle of his sinful flesh, and he implanted that wicked idea. And that, too, is how we are affected through the vehicle of our sinful flesh. The enemy attaches onto us and begins to poison our minds, implanting wicked thoughts and ideas into our thoughts to get us to sin. You hate her? Okay. Take her down. A well-placed attack on social media ought to do just the trick. Plus, it's her fault for taking those kind of pictures. You'd be better off dead. No one cares about you. You're worthless. Just kill yourself. Save someone else the trouble. Love is love. Who cares what God says about sex anyways? Do it your own way. If you want it, take it. They're not going to need it. You don't deserve to be treated that way. Go find someone else that'll make you feel happy. Who cares what your spouse is going to say or think? If they won't shut up, shut them up for good. They can't talk to you like that. You shouldn't have to deal with the inconvenience because you had sex. No one's going to want it anyway, and you're doing the world a favor. Who cares if she says no? I'm going to get what I want when I want it. It's just one click. Come on, how bad can looking at that really be? From the extreme to the very subtle, Satan whispers in our minds, death and destruction. He whispers in our minds, death and destruction, inching us closer to the realization of his destructive plans as he exploits where we are the weakest where we're the least prepared and defended. Genesis 4-7, God says, you'll be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Satan is crouching at the door, eager to control you. You must subdue it and be its master. But how are you supposed to subdue it if you don't even know he's there? If you don't even know you're in the fight for your life, how are you supposed to subdue him and be his master? You see, when I was fighting with Chad and his arms were around my throat and he was squeezing the life out of me, I had one thought. This is it. I'm not going to make it. I can't breathe. I can't move. What am I going to do? And to my luck... My mom heard what was going outside. She stepped out on the porch and she said, hey, let him go. And he did. Why did that happen? It's 
because the power of my next-door neighbor was no match for the authority in my mom's voice. And Jesus came to destroy the power of the devil, to unveil his plans, to shed light on his schemes, and he put an end to the devil's work when his arms were stretched out, and with everything he had, he cried out, It is finished! It is finished! Which indicated to us that the days of Satan ruling the roost were over. Jesus defeated the power of death with death itself. Satan is no match for the authority in the voice, word, name, and blood of Jesus Christ. And that power that broke the power of death is given to all who repent of their sinful ways, trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, for he gives us the very same Holy Spirit that empowered him while he was here with us. Luke 4, 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, the blind will see, and those that are oppressed will be set free. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are to be carrying that torch into the world as we engage people where they are and lead them to becoming fully developed followers of Jesus Christ. He has given us the power, the means, and the authority. But for so many of us, especially those who have grown up in church, we've been in a Christian a long time, we've become accustomed to being Sunday Christians. Offering God what we accrued over the process of time, caught up in a religion, but we have no real, vibrant, powerful relationship through, in Christ through the Holy Spirit. As the modern church, we become numb to the war. We've become the captive the blind, and the oppressed, when we should be setting the blind, the captive, and the oppressed free in the name of Jesus. So not only do we live defeated Christian lives, but our families live defeated. Our churches live defeated. Our communities walk around in oppression because we are not, as the church, making our advance. We're putting walls up in our hearts to separate and push against what God wants while at the same time letting the enemy break through the cracks, positioning himself perfectly for attack while we remain completely unaware. There's so much fear in the church, resentment, selfishness, self-centeredness, compromise, apathy, fatigue, discord, disunity in the church because of this blindness. And I know I had been living in the dark for far too long until God recently woke me up to the reality of this war. And so I know that there are many even here today in our church that have been living in the dark also for far too long. The problem is, is that if we're not actively fighting against the enemy, guess what? We end up doing his work for him. We do. Because he gains entry into our lives and uses us to accomplish his plans in the world. Paul to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 14 he says this, he says, for light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. My hope through this series is that the light of God will shine on this fight. That his schemes and plans and his work in our lives will be exposed because our lives, our family's lives, our church's lives depend on it. 
I pray that Christ wakes us up, breathes into us a new breath of life through the Holy Spirit, that we begin living as the church of Jesus Christ has been called to live in this dark world as bold ambassadors of the faith, relieving and releasing and freeing those who are oppressed by the enemy. And over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about this war, how it manifests, how it affects our lives, how we can break free from Satan's hold through inner healing and deliverance, how we can go to war for each other as we advance on the gates of hell. But today as we close, and for our response time today, I'm going to ask you when we pray to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the war to reveal to you the areas in your life that you've been blinded by the enemy. This week, I want you to meditate on this verse every day this week. Every day. Make it a habit. Daniel chapter 2, verse 22. Daniel, he says this about God. He says, God, he reveals deep and mysterious things. He knows what lies in hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. This is our God. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. And as you meditate on that, you're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal things to you. I want you to pray a specific prayer. I want you to pray this. Just say, Father, reveal to me the secret and deep things in the name of Jesus. Let's do that together. Let's just speak that aloud right here in this place. Say, Father, Father. reveal to me the secret and deep things in the name of Jesus. Let this be our heart's cry, church. The days of walking blind are no more. We need to wake up to the world. The enemy is not releasing or giving up on his advance or his attack, and we need to match and overthrow him in the name of Jesus. The Word of God says we don't need to neglect meeting together in the spiritual things that we've been trained and we've learned about, but we need to focus in. We need to lean into God, lean into the Holy Spirit as we see the day of the end approaching. We are in the last days. There's not another generation that is going to be coming after us. This is the last days if Christ doesn't come back tomorrow or today. The enemy will continue his advance, his attack. He'll continue to increase the lies and the plans of destruction in our life. And we need to be binding ourselves together in this fight for our lives. You pray this week. Ask God to bring in your mind the areas you've surrendered to sin's control. And whatever he brings to your mind, write it down. Write down those areas. Write it down and keep it somewhere where you can get it out every day. And as you write it down and you open your eyes, you break out of denial, and you see where the enemy has had his hands around your throat. You confess those things to God and you renounce them in the name of Jesus. You pray out loud. You say, God, I confess this sin to you. I confess this attitude. I confess this behavior. I confess this, this, uh, just this stain of my past to you in the name of Jesus. I renounce it by the blood of Christ. I come out of agreement with that sin and I come into agreement with the word of God. And you begin to take steps forward as you walk free from Satan's grasp in your life. You begin to do battle this week. If you're here today, under the sound of my voice, and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's never been a time in your life where you just prayed out to God and said, God, forgive me of my sins. 
I trust Jesus today as my Lord and Savior. Then the Bible says, the Word of God says, that you belong to the enemy. That you're still part of his kingdom. And if you were to die today, you would die guilty of your sins, and you'd have nothing to look forward to but destruction and judgment in a place that was reserved only for Satan and his demons. But the hope of the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus died so you can live. He was judged so that you could be set free. And if you make that decision today to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to call out to him, guess what? The Holy Spirit's going to come and transform and make something new happen in your life today. You're going to be a new creature going from death to life. He's going to make us home in your heart. He's going to give you the power and the authority to overcome the works of the enemy in your life. And you'll spend eternity with God to know nothing but perfect love, joy, peace, tenderness, mercy, goodness, and faith and grace in the name of Jesus forever and forever and forever. In just a moment when we pray, this altar is going to be open, this first row of seats. Whatever God is working on in your life, you respond to him. And if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, meet me down here. And I'd be honored to introduce you to the one that's going to change your life. It can change your family's life. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God. For it is alive and it is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It reveals the hidden things. God, your word pierces even the hardest hearts it breaks through even the strongest walls. And God, I trust that in today, your word has begun breaking through some walls. It's been piercing some hearts. That even as we've been gathering together, your Holy Spirit has been revealing the deep and hidden things. Things that we've been trying to bury deep down and ignore and deny. Places in our lives that the enemy has had his hands around our throats. That's not how you chose for us to live. That's not why you died and came back from the dead so that we could live barely hanging on, barely breathing. But no, you came so that we could have life and life abundantly so that we could be empowered and sent out, that we would be delivering people from the oppression of the enemy, not struggling under the weight of it. Father, as we open now the time for prayer and response, I pray, God, that there would not be a stubborn heart in this place, that we would each respond according to what you are doing in our hearts and lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's remain in an attitude of prayer. You respond as the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Be down here to pray with anyone who needs prayer.